Hey, I'm Sean. And I'm Jesse. And, and we're, we're the, the DMs, DMs of, of Vancouver. Vancouver. We're two newish DMs who are still getting the hang of the whole DM thing. So we sit down with a friend every couple of weeks and pick their brain on their approach to DMing. So come along as we figure out how to help our players have the best time possible at the gaming table. Today's episode is brought to you by Adventure Dice. Adventure Dice is an online dice shop based here in Vancouver, selling a variety of dice and other gaming accessories. Personally, I'm a big fan of their rolling trays and the Grounded Pixie Dice Set. Adventure Dice ships for free anywhere in Canada, and if you use the code DMV at checkout, you can get a 10% discount on your purchase. That's DMV for a nice discount on your new tabletop gear. Find the shop at adventuredice.ca and roll for adventure! Hey folks, welcome to another episode of DMs of Vancouver. Today we're going to be talking about indie games. Today we're joined by Starshine. How's it going, Star? It's going well. How are you guys? I'm doing all right. Good. Doing good. Um, so, first off, where might people know you from? Uh, they probably know me from Twitter, where I'm repeatedly either shitposting or liking GIFs from Japanese kid shows. Sometimes I make games, but that's that's rarer. It's mostly the kids shows. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, let's let's start off with the obvious question: What is an indie game? And this is the question that I've spent like when preparing for this. I spent a lot of time thinking about is it, like how do you define indie game? It gets weird. It reminds me of I'm not sure if you ever read it like Kerrang or Pitchfork magazine when you were a teen. I was a goth the teens or a Kerrang. You always get this thing of like, oh, there's an indie band coming out, and the next issue of the letters page would have hundreds of letters. This person was once in the room with Brian Eno, so they can't be indie. Or they own a banana. <laughs> for the sake of for the sake of this conversation, indie is anything that isn't owned by Hasbro or isn't one of the big four you think about. You can debate team sizes and all that, but I think in this case, indie is going to be doing a lot of heavy lifting as a general catch-all. Obviously, yeah. some games are more indie than others, but I, once I you fall down that rabbit hole... Yeah, I saw something on Twitter the other day where they're talking about like for it was talking about video game indies. And they're like, indie is a term that does a lot of lifting because it covers anything from one person alone in their bedroom to a team of fifteen with millions of dollars. And it's we need more terms, but we're not going to be the ones to come up with them right now. Yeah, yeah. And with video games, you do have sort of the triple A, double A, single A, B now, but you don't really get that. I think in TTRPG spaces, just because it's you don't see as much of the dev time a lot of the time. A lot of stuff just comes out, and it's here. It is. It's under a pen name, so good luck working out. Because I've had people think I'm four people in the past. It's like, oh, so your team? No, it's just, it's just me. Well, who did that? That was just me as well. I, I do a lot of things. <laughs> I think the music comparison is a good one because indie is such a weird thing when you talk about music. Like, I spent a lot of time in my teens reading Razor Cake, which is like the kind of punk equivalent to Kerrang! and all those. And like, people like Jeff Rosenstock, who now is does the music for Craig of the Creek, but is like oh, yeah. also this successful indie artist who like back then, they're like, well, everybody knows Bomb the Music Industry. They're not really indie. It's like, it's like, no. <laughs> He's like one of the most indie artists to ever indie. He essentially invented pay what you want records. Like it's one of those things. Once you start down that line, you end up having like a rule with twelve caveats, and it just becomes this nightmare to deal with. It's yeah. But so for the purposes of this discussion, it's just it's not one of the big publishing houses that is putting out content, and that's an indie game. Yeah. yeah, to me, I would say any indie game in this case is if you go up to someone on the street and say, name me a tabletop role-playing game, it's one they don't say, and they'll say one of three. They'll say D&D. Maybe if they you know, are wearing a trench coat, they'll tell you World of Darkness, specifically Vampire, and maybe Pathfinder if you live in a very nerdy city. Yeah, I I would, I would almost put Shadowrun, but Shadowrun is kind of on the edge of like, you hit, once you've been in tabletop for a while, people start to talk about some of the other games. I think Shadowrun is one of the first one to come up because it's it's D and D, but in the future, and so and it had the video games as well, which were a major jumping on point for a lot of people. Yeah, like I definitely play Shadowrun with people who come from the video game and look into like why is Shadowrun the game built in this very odd fashion? It's like oh, because they're trying to copy the tabletop game, which is something that I find 
like as a side note, very strange when when game devs try to make a video game that is exactly faithful to the role playing game. Because like Neverwinter Nights was one of my favorite role playing games, but there was some weird stuff in there because they were basically just trying to turn third edition into a video game. It was bizarre. Eye of the Beholder was that uh, a couple of oh God no, like a year ago now. I was streaming the GBA port of Eye of the Beholder. I was like, this is bizarrely hard, this game. And then you look into it and you find out it has all of the 3.5 stats and half of them have nothing. They don't do anything. They're just there. It's like, you could scribe scroll. We haven't given you a way to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to stop because I hit a wall. It's like, oh, you need to buy this one specific thing we've written code for. Everything else is useless. <laughs> Please delete your save and start again. <laughs> no, no, no. I haven't gone back to that game since. <laughs> so I think... One of the things that probably confronts people when they first decide, like, oh, I don't want to play big game A or B. I want to go and play something indie. I want to support an indie developer or I just want to try something new or find something that's more my sensibilities. How how do people, how do you suggest, like, where do people go to find these things? Because uh, the only one that I know of is a site that I'm probably going to be staying away from for a little while is Drive RPG. And I know that there are plenty of other places. I just, I don't know what they are because there can't be just one place that people find these things. No, drive through is obviously, for all of its sins, is still a big part of the industry. And a lot of bigger games that are indie go to drive through. A company you've been hearing probably a lot about recently is itch.io. itch.io. I'm not, they say it both ways. Uh, obviously, you probably saw the bundle fresh, the quality that did $8 million, which is, to this day, I can't believe that's a thing that happened. <laughs> like, I submitted for that, and I was like, oh, this will make 50 grand. You know, it's 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 what I've got available to help people. And it's like, I looked the next day, and it's like, two million. I'm like, oh, well, jeez. I think that's been a big reason people are looking at indie games, because I think it showed a lot of people that there's a very big indie community. Like, even as someone who's in it, seeing it kind of down there, it's like, oh, yeah, here's the 80 or 90 games. And I've heard about four of them. It's like, wow. So itch is probably a place you want to go looking. And even if there is something you want on drive through, do remember that drive through uh, you can opt to be non-exclusive. So some people have their game on itch and on drive through, and if you can, you probably should be buying via itch. Itch has a sliding scale for what it takes. It's cut by default. It's ten percent, give or take uh, international currencies. Obviously, we're Canadian, so it throws all the numbers off. Uh, but. Uh, Itch is, uh, if you want to support credit, it's a great place because by default, 10% against the 30, 40 drive through charge you is amazing. And that opens up a lot of options, especially for someone like me um, who makes a lot of smaller games. With drive throughs cut, I can't. Pr- I have to price things really high, which feels a bit pointless. Like, here's a four-page zine game which is designed to be played in 30 minutes. You can't sell that for $50. I would feel terrible. But I have to on drive through because... If not, I make negative money whenever I sell it. <laughs> on itch, I can sell things like 2 $3, and then the cut is a lot more fair. And if you're looking as well, itch, a lot of um, Cradle and itch these days are doing community copies, which isn't officially supported, but we do it via basically using a function which I think is designed for Patreon bonuses and stuff like Kickstarter bonuses, but we kind of fiddle with how that works to do community copies for marginalized groups or... People just can't afford it. So most of my games will always have 10 free copies that you can just go on and claim if you have an itch account. So if you want to look at something that you don't think about, yeah, you can't afford, that's a good way of getting them. That's pretty cool. Uh, it's, it's great. It's a really nice thing. And it's, especially right now, everyone, I, it's great for people right now who definitely are hard for money because, God, the world went to hell a couple of months ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, obviously games come slightly below food in the hierarchy of needs. Yeah. Well, last time I checked, it might have changed. Something that you mentioned that I wanted to uh, point out is you mentioned making games are like three, four pages. And I think that's one of the things that when I heard about indie games, that was the thing that I found really interesting is that there are people doing one page, two page, four page PDFs of these games that on the surface are really simple, but like if you're trying to introduce somebody who's never played a tabletop game before into tabletop, having something that you put, you can print out a single page paper, put it in front of them. That's the entire rule set. And then you're off to the races. There's no like, okay, we have to spend 
an entire four hours creating a character with you so that we can then play one session to see if you like tabletop games. You can throw something like uh, Honey Heist in front of them. Honey Heist is brilliant, yeah, for that. And then you just, it's really quick. You can play a game in like half an hour to an hour and then they know if they like tabletop games and playing role-playing games. And I think it's fantastic that there's so much room for that kind of stuff with indie games. And yeah, and uh, something I, I, I tend to call a lot of my stuff party TTRPGs as opposed, because they are. They're something like, I think there's a thing with, I've got a lot of friend groups and we have a terrible scheduling problems. Um, always have them. So having a game where it's like you can throw it on the table and it's good to go in 20 minutes is great because the amount of times I've tried to set up a game and someone gets called away, something happens, and it's like, well, got to keep waiting for a character sheet that may come at some point between now and December. I'm, I'm terrible for this. I exist on this nether space of not having a time zone. So it's like, well, I hope, you know, if I'm busy, you know, I might not get around to it, but a party game would be, hey, this is this, four things, do it. And I think that's been the big thing. I think people, a lot of people are noticing that is because for years now, a big point of the industry has been these hardback, sort of the big hardback, basically coffee table books that are as much art books as they are game books. Yeah. They're, for, like, I always point to the, and I don't have it on me, as I, is uh, some of the 40K, the Warhammer tabletop books. So much, when you get to the rules, it's like they're right at the back. And it's like 15 pages of lore. Like, I always remember... And when I play 40k, I play Harlequins, and the Harlequins old book for the old edition, I think it was 98% a timeline of various Harlequin events, which is really cool if you like the novels, but not useful when I'm playing the game. I'm like, I'd, I want to know if that guy can shoot this far. And no, I don't care what happened in 400 BC. Yes, a guy did something at one point. Where's how far he can shoot? <laughs> Yeah, that's something I remember from my 40k days is that like every book, the first half of it is art and story and fluff. And I loved it. But yeah, when you're trying to play a game and find that one particular rule to justify why your unit can do a thing, not great. Uh, yeah, so I think that's a, a great thing. I think it makes things, it also helps just for budget for a lot of developer for a lot of developers, it helps me a lot, is that being able to have things cheaper and smaller and have an audience that wants that it means I don't have to sit there trying to pad stuff out. It's like, I can be very upfront, and uh, I am with a lot of my, my stuff. So stuff like um, the game that was in the bundle, you have one ability, the ability to fuck this up. I can be very straightforward. It's like, hey, this game's four pages. It's one mechanic. Go with it. Do whatever you want with it. But it's a single new mechanic. And, you know, it's not, obviously it's not. It's not one of the big guys where you're getting, like, complex character sheets and all this. It is what it is. And I think that book, it, for me, it's great because you can play with very specific mechanics. And as someone who likes designing away from dice, having this ability to make smaller things, it's cool because it means I can play with these very small ideas in a very small space. And when we talk about indie games, um, we compare it to video games. I think you see that very similar in sort of the video game industry, where you get a lot of games that have one mechanic they play with and do something with. For instance, Undertale is a good example of that. It was sort of a subversion of normal RPGs by having its own battle system, and that's what it plays with. Something like Journey, which was based entirely on movement mechanics, which obviously in AAA you can't really put out a game. It's like it's just jumping from place to place. Wouldn't fly. Yeah, but in, something in, like... in the indie scene, people are open to smaller experiences. Yeah, I think one of my favorite examples of that is it's a somewhat recentish game, uh, Baba Is You. Oh, I adore Baba Is You. Where like, yeah, that that's a mechanic that there's no way you could get a triple A game that does something like that because you can't justify a triple A game that's that short and that focused on a single mechanic. But yeah, indie developers like and that's one of the things I noticed from the the itch bundle is that there are plenty of games in there that like they say, like, oh, this is just an hour, but it's a fun experience that I wanted to explore this mechanic or it's a visual novel or stuff like that. It's yeah, lots of cool stuff out there. Yeah, and you can just get people who are sort of reverting sort of games as an event and making the time into other things. So we're saying like lyric games are specifically that and defining lyric game is its own dramatic can of worms. But so games that are designed to be during something else or have where you're doing something very specific. Um, for instance, I did Meal Monsters, which was all about a game you play while you cook based on expiration dates of food. And I also did um, Imagine If We Kissed in the Rain, which is literally designed to be, you can only play this game while it's raining. 
And you, there's all sorts of games that have this thing like, hey, this is a game that you don't sit down around your table and decide we're doing a game night. This is a game you play while thinking about something else, while doing something else. It's more of a ritual, which is another term that we're seeing bounced around a lot. And I got essentially one of my favorite things about Itch actually is that you can set a descriptor for your game. So it's like by default, it's called it will call it this game, but you can change that to anything you want. So I've got things called mockery. One of them is called, one of mine refers to itself as piss take, if you buy it. <laughs> it's like, you've brought this piss take. It's like, it's beautiful. It lets you sort of temper expectations in a negative way of putting it. But basically put yourself like, hey, this isn't a game as you would normally expect it. This is something else and should be treated as something else. Yeah. And obviously when you're looking for games, uh, to just loop all the way back around to my point, I think it's good as hike. Uh, you can also look at Twitter. A lot of people have their own personal sites where they host PDFs and sell PDFs. Uh, obviously, Twitter kind of lacks really good searchability tools for stuff. So it's a case of following the right people. There are um, lists, public lists of TTRPG designers you can look on and sort of follow someone whose stuff you like and then often talk about other people's stuff. So that's a slightly more difficult way of doing it, but it is an option. Yeah. And like, it's great. If you're following the right people on Twitter, you do see, I've been noticing more and more creators who are both talking about stuff they've made, but being like, oh, do you want an alternative for a fantasy game that's maybe not made by Wizards of the Coast? You know, here's a list of of a bunch of them. You can go find them here. Um, But again, it's the, the, the omnipresent eternal problem with Twitter is you need to be following the right people to see that kind of stuff. And Twitter's algorithm feeds on sadness, I think. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. oh, so, some days you tweet something and you're like, suddenly this has 4K notes. Like, I was making a joke about melons. I hadn't really intended this to go this far. <laughs> so I think a good uh, next point to hit on is is deciding what to run. Because there's there is, like, because we talked about earlier, there is such a wide range of what an indie is from one person working on their own to a team of people. Um, so how how would you recommend that somebody who's decided they want to run an indie game, uh, how to decide what they should run? It's it, it obviously the thing we're going to come back to a lot. It's group communication and communicating with your group. But it's deciding what story you want to tell. I think the thing is... and. Again, I hate to keep mentioning D&D because I'm trying to talk about not doing that. Is it kind of is, it's the artillery strike of tabletop. It does the job, kind of. It will hit the area you sort of want it to hit and take out four houses we don't want to hit. But it's, you kind of want to look at what you enjoy and what your story is, but what you want to simulate. Uh, Also, some games maybe you want to socialate, socialate, (laughs) simulate the social aspects or maybe you want something that's more heavy on combat, or maybe you enjoy just free-form role-playing, and seeing what your group likes of the genre you want to play. Uh, on Twitter yesterday, there's actually quite a good thread of people asking, I want a game that fits the, this general sort of sentence. And the keys, and you can get a lot of different games for that one sentence, but it's deciding what part of it you think is more important that you want simulated. Uh, for instance, uh, I'm a big fan of the magical girl genre, but in that, there's a lot of different elements. So obviously you could go to something like, let's say, Madoka, uh, which is more about social and it's about sort of suffering and pain. So you might decide that, hey, what simulates that better is maybe something like solo journaling or something which is built on social mechanics. But you might be like, I want to do the, the fight scenes. I want to jump around firing laser beams at people. And then you, you'll probably be looking at something like Glitter Hearts or maybe Hero 2 and... It's that kind of deciding what do we want to be the focus of this game? And that's obviously something that everyone at the table should have a say in, and everyone has their own opinions. Uh, and it's, you can basically, with the indie scene at the moment, you can go from games that are very wide that are designed to cover everything to very, very specific experiences that, again, I, I bring up Hero 2 a lot. It's a game I really like, and it, it covers a very specific experience, which is the transgender coming out experience of negotiating. Uh, the self and the true self, which is something I'm a big fan of. But again, it's, it's that it's a very specific experience, which you might not be looking for in your superhero fantasy. Yeah, like I'm just thinking about, like myself, I like science fiction games, and just thinking about, like I've got a bookshelf above my monitors here, and I've got Eclipse Phase and 
Coriolis, which are two very different science fiction games. So um, I guess one thing that I've, I'm curious about, because I've seen a little bit, bit of it when I was looking through the Itch.io bundle, is they seem to, the, the developers who put role playing, uh, tabletop role-playing games in the Itch.io bundle, um, they seem to have like fairly good descriptions around like, hey, this is a game, here are the about this, here are the themes, here are the mechanics. Is that something you found to be fairly consistent on Itch, where developers will make sure that people understand what kind of game it is before, so that they know what they're getting into before they buy? Yes and no. Obviously, I can't call myself the arbiter of Itch, but from what I've seen and from the circles I'm in, which are definitely slanted into certain simulation experiences, people are much more open. I think that's a big part of that is Itch doesn't actually have PDF previewing, which is something that they've been saying they're going to add for a while. Itch is quite small. Um, the guy who runs it, uh, I believe he's Leaf or Life, I, I never heard it said, uh, is very open with the community about what he's trying to do. And Itch was never really designed to be a TTRPG platform. It was designed to be a video games platform. Right. So because of the lack of PDF previewing, your option is screenshotting all the pages, which I do sometimes, but that, after a while you end up with uh, just a page that's four foot long, like you're unrolling a massive scroll, or very, very in-depth descriptions. So I think a lot of people are going through the descriptions just so they're not having to render all their pages as screenshots, which can take... It takes me long enough on a 10-page game, I'm sure to think on a 50-page game how long it would take to compress them all. It would take a while. Right. But the store pages are obviously a really good thing for you to use. And most places, I think most indie designers are keen to sort of sell you on why their game is and what their game is. Yeah, and that's something I noticed when I was looking through the bundle as well. Like almost every tabletop RPG I clicked on had a really good description of what it is, often going into the generals of the mechanics and everything like that. So itch is great if you're looking around most of the time, you can usually find what a game is and how it works in the description. Yeah, and it, it's it's a lovely site to navigate because uh, there are the tops of the categories. So the tabletop game category, you get to see all the top reviewed, even though the reviews on it are not used dramatically often. They're a bit out of the way. But what's sort of new, what's popular, it's, it's got very good discoverability, which is why I quite like it. Because it does mean that people can you can go on a, an itch dive and find some interesting things just by typing in keywords. Like I've had found a couple of really good video games, a couple of really good TTRPGs, just by like, eh, this is a keyword of what I like. Put it in, see what I get. Yeah, and like I like the variety of stuff in it, and I think it it allows, like you were saying, because the payout's a bit larger for creators, it allows them to like put up games that are maybe just a silly idea that are ended up being a single page and make a little bit of money off of of it. Like I was, I was looking through the bundle and I found uh, the goose of Grilner Grove, which is essentially uh, the untitled goose game, but you're playing as the villagers telling stories about your encounter with the goose. Adore that game to death. It's amazing. It's so much fun. And it's, it's simple. It's It's like what two pages you you're meant to print them back to back and fold them into a pamphlet. It's, it's fantastic, and like a game like that, where you're maybe charging, I'm gonna guess like five five ish dollars or whatever. You're not gonna make any money selling that on drive through. No. Yeah. I think the thing to, to sort of add to a point is itch does actually have tipping as an option for most games. Oh, that's fantastic so to know. You can. So I like to price things reachable. Cause I'm kind of the opinion I would rather make less money and have people actually play stuff than not have anyone play it but tipping so tip, i've had some really nice tips which have been really nice because it's like i can sell a game and then if people like it come back and give more money to um it. and you know what if you bought that bundle and you found games that you like that's an excellent idea because well it's fantastic oh. that those creators all donated their games to that bundle but uh you know also like i'm gonna go back and i think tip the people who've made goose of Grilled or grove some money because i had a great time playing that with my friends I, th- I think that's something to bring up is the bundle was great, but uh, for a lot of it, for a lot of indie devs, a lot of the ones I talked to, uh, we, yeah, the, that was like a month, two months, maybe nearly a year's worth of sort of purchases in inverted commas, just they, they're not going to get. And it, no one was upset about that because obviously you know that going in and everyone wanted to help. But for indie creators, you know, it, those kind of things are a thing you have to think about. It's like, I make so much of these games per year and donating one means I lose out on whatever that would make. 
And, you know, again, while it's cool, charity is cool, and I'm so happy that Itch Bundle happened, people can't do future future charity events if they died from not eating. Yeah. It, continued existence is a good thing, and I will support it in any way I can. <laughs> so, I just want to loop back to a point that you made about the space games. I think that's actually a really good point about how you approach going to an indie game is there's a lot of space games space-themed, but they all do something very, very different. Like, a game I love is Traveler, the original Traveler. And there's a specific hack of it I love, which added real-world astrophysics. I'm a nerd, pre-warning. <laughs> so for me, I was like, since I want to play a space game, I would dumb that on the desk. Like, come on then, who wants five pages of maths per maneuver? <laughs> Obviously, that's just me and, like, four other people. So that's why you have to say, what do you want to simulate? Because some people want Firefly. They want you know, Space Cowboys. Some people want Star Wars, where ships kind of do whatever they want to do because that's what they do. Hyperspace is a thing. It's fine. Midichlorians exist and do something. It doesn't really matter. What matters is we go find the bad people and we go give them a smack with our weapons. Some people, like me, do want working out how we get to an asteroid when it's blue shifting away from us at a constant rate. So again, that's why you'd approach this with like, want to play a space game, we want to simulate heroism, we want soft sci-fi, or I'd say, hey, I quite like hard sci-fi where survival in space is the core of the game. We may not encounter a hostile force, but space is the hostile force. Yeah, and something that I've, like kind of going with the there's so much out there, is something that I've seen, I've only been exposed to it somewhat recently, are the idea of, single player tabletop RPGs where you play like on your own, you sit down at your table and the game walks you through this experience and you can make choices and everything because it's still a tabletop role-playing game. But I was just wondering if you could speak a little bit more about these kind of uh, outside the norm of what people think of a tabletop role-playing game, like what's out there in the indie space for this kind of stuff. There's a lot. So, so, so the journaling games are, becoming the hot thing uh i think specifically because they are very accessible especially in this time where we can't touch other people you know you play them you're obviously the big thing the time releasing this is uh, wretched uh the space themed survival game that uses a jenga ta- falling block tower i want to keep my kneecaps mr hasbro <laughs> uses a falling block tower and deck of cards and the deck of cards is how you're generating events recently the, they released the srd for that the resource document wretched and loan and there was a jam. Well, last time I checked, which was this morning, so it's probably gone up since then, there were 80 entries of it covering all sorts of things from dying alone in space to talking to your cat, or in the case of the one I made, running a blockbuster. <laughs> Man, or, uh, blockbuster. As I, as, I, as I found out, someone still owns the name Blockbuster and they will send you a cease and desist. So <laughs> just for yeah. release, that game had uh, control find blockbuster, control replace plus blockers. <laughs> there is apparently still one blockbuster in operation somewhere in the states. It's, it's it hard it? to tell. It's is hard it to it? tell because it's a couple of fake parody accounts. I was looking into it because I wanted to call them and see, but they're par- two of them are parodies. They're not real. Oh, Isn't there, John Oliver did something on on an episode of last week tonight. I think there's one in Alaska still that. Might still be open. I don't. Remember. I think the one in Alaska closed because I based it on the one in Alaska. But I uh, think that either went. It was either fake and it's a parody account, or it went tits up at some point. Huh. I spent like five hours looking this up, and I couldn't find any information. And all the phone numbers I could find were dead. All the emails just bounced back. So I don't know. So sorry if you're looking for video recommendations in Alaska. I can't help you. <laughs> <laughs> So you mentioned with the the one game using the falling block tower and cards, is it something common to these like single player experiences where you're not using dice, or is that just these specific games? Dice are a thing in uh, is is a thing in Wretched. You you are using a dice at certain points, but I I think a lot of games for single player are going away. Are a lot of them are using dice? Like there there definitely is a push to use different things just because they add I think a bit more physicality and. They remove the temptation to just ignore dice rolls. I think because they are solo, they are more intimate, and these physical props add to that intimacy and add to that sense of drama, which you can't really get with one dice on your own. Like, playing Yahtzee solo is a very sad experience. 
But the block tower adds this very physical thing you can't really fight against because you're fighting against gravity. And as we all know, gravity doesn't play favorites. So it adds this very kinetic, which is why I really like it. Because it's very kinetic because you've got this sort of tumbling tower that can represent anything from, in you know, my case, two games I made the case of your store or your ability to not die because your magical goal has failed. It, it's just, I think it adds so much more. And I think people are just wanting to look at things that aren't dice in general. I, I think there's so many other things you can use as resolution mechanics, especially when you work out that, hey, you can steal things from other games you have around the house and put those into your solo game. I think that's such a huge thing for these indie games to help people get into playing them is that, yeah, you don't need to go to some weird store that's full of uh, smelly geeks playing Magic the Gathering and you can just grab a pack of cards or a coin or something you've got most likely lying around your house and you can play one of these games. That is definitely part of the appeal. Yeah. And I think it's just, again, there's a lot of different ways you they approach this. There's a lot of letter writing games as well now, we're seeing, which are about writing letters to either actual people. There's a couple of two-player ones whose name is eluding me. I don't have them in my list. And there's also uh, ones where you sort of write to yourself or write to an, uh, sort of, I guess I'd phrase it as a non-existent party. You're effectively just keeping a journal and that's how you're building. You're also seeing people do solo journaling games via Twitter, which is kind of cool. So keeping like an in-character blog via tweets, because especially most of these um, are based on, hey, is a prompt to sort of follow through on. They're the perfect length for like a tweet or two linked tweets. So you do see people do these like in-character Twitter things, which I think are really cool. As someone who um, adores ARGs, uh, alternative reality games as a concept, uh, sort of blurring that line between reality and fiction, I think that's really cool. That is really cool. So kind of. Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was just saying it kind of reminds me of back from when I was on Tumblr, the uh, the ask blogs people would do in character for various things. It kind of does feel like a spinoff of that. Yeah. I think mean, there's, there's this sort of spinoff in the internet, and, so, and it's been there since, I mean, uh, the machine was the kind of the first ARG, but there's been this kind of meta-narrative thing of the internet since it started. You know, you see things like in the early 2000s, Majestic, uh, was one of the first big things. And then obviously what Nine Inch Nails did with Year Zero. There's been all sorts of these ways of do, doing this meta-narrative via the internet. And I think a lot of games are tapping into that because it is something that most people have access to. And as we, we distribute online, why not work in these these online elements? One thing I want to point out while you're sort of, we're still on system is there's kind of a big divide you're going to see while you're looking at games is the difference between sort of original systems and hacks. So there are a lot of toolkits out there which people build on. So if you're in the TWA space, you'll be familiar with Powered by the Apocalypse, mm-hmm. yes. which is not uh, pronounced Pubertiva, as I presumed it was for several months, <laughs> uh, which is the amount of Powered by Apocalypse. I can't go into There are hacks of hacks of hacks of hacks of hacks of Powered by the Apocalypse. It's an ungodly list. They have it on their website of all the, sort of the compliant games they've seen, and it's gigantic. Yeah. Uh, but it's based on the Apocalypse World System. So you see a lot of people build games on that because toolkits are great. You'll see a lot of people uh, hacking Fate or Plot Armor is the other big one. So if if you found a system you like in the past, it's actually quite easy for you to look at what other people have done with it and then use that in the future. So I know some people like who have used Fate, fate hacks, not fake hacks, <laughs> Fate hacks for... Games that are vastly different genres. I've played in Persona themed fate hacks, and I've played in ones where you, I played in one where you ran, a, where everyone ran a noodle shop. It was bizarre, <laughs> but great if you like noodles. So you can decide that I'm going to work on this totally original system, or you can look for you know a hack someone else has done. Find the um, D20 is another big one. Uh, also, a lot of people are hacking Troika now. I'm seeing a lot of Troika hacks. So yeah, you can say, hey, I've used this system in the past. I like it. Let's see what other people have done with it. And a lot of uh, smaller indie creators right now are putting out SRDs, which are Creative Commons for you to do what you want with, which uh, plug, plug I actually did recently. Uh, my <laughs> SRD for Persona Drive, I was like, hey, I made a system that I actually quite like. And it came about in a really dumb way. But I think someone else might like find a use for it. So it's Creative Commons, do whatever you want with it. And that's the same with Wretched. That did the Wretched Alone SRD. 
is Creative Commons. You just attribute, and there you go. And I don't know the licensing of Fate. I believe that is also a tributation license. I didn't check. But so many systems, you can sort of get into one and then have hundreds of hacks at your disposal if you don't want to learn a new system. Right. So something that we, we already touched on this a little bit, but outside of itch, I think the only other place that I've, that I'm somewhat familiar with is Gumroad, but I don't know if Gumroad has any kind of searching functionality because I, my understanding is it's more of a place that you can set up as your own little store to sell like a comic or a, a TTRPG. You just want to have somewhere that you can sell the PDF that isn't drive through or something like that. Do you know any, much about Gumroad? Gumroad, I've, I've seen a lot about stuff about. Um, I'm not using it myself, so I can't be 100% on it, but it, it is big. I know it's especially big. A lot of my friends in sort of comic and zining use Gumroad a lot. It's a good way of doing small runs of things, uh, of physical items. It's. I know it's also sort of being floated as an Etsy alternative, but we'll see. Etsy alternatives have come and gone. Uh, if you are selling physical items or you are selling things smaller than yes, it does have a search, which is f- fine. Though I will say from talking to people and who I've talked to, it always seems that you drive traffic to Gumroad. You very rarely just get traffic naturally from it. Right. Unlike something with itch or drive through. Usually you're having to send people there to be like, hey, I have something on Gumroad. Here's its cost. So that's, again, a place where I mostly see people using it as a storefront, which they'll link to from Twitter or Card or whatever they use as their landing space. Right. Are there are there many other spaces that you know of outside of, like we've covered uh, Gumroad, Itch, people having their own website, which you find through Twitter and, of course, Twitter. Uh, are there any other places that you know of where people can go to like browse around and try to find stuff? I know there's a lot of sort of smaller groups have their own um, their own sites now, uh, which are sort of cooperative sites. Uh, the, is it the San Jose Co-op? I believe I got to check. I, I just totally it's gone from my head. It's San somewhere. <laughs> my American place name is not the best, <laughs> but several like, co-ops have their own thing. But apart from that, those are the storefronts I know of and use. A good if you have access to physical zining events, they're also good. I know a lot of libraries do support zine groups, and some of those do have TTRPG sort of areas to them, but that's obviously depending on your city. We're lucky we're in Vancouver. I do know there are some TTRPG zines in Vancouver Public because we're in a massive damn city. It's going to be. <laughs> I, I don't think that's going to be the case if you listen to this in Nebraska or Wyoming. I say nearly two states I've never been to. But I, that certainly is, as someone who grew up in a small town, that certainly isn't a small town option. Also, you can look at your local game stores. A lot of them do support, do sell zines or smaller products. Obviously, this varies store to store and what their policies are. I know in Vancouver, they're decently open to it, but your city may vary. And obviously, that requires you to have a local game store, which, let's be honest, is getting rarer and rarer, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So if you have one, support the hell out of it before it vanishes, especially at the moment. Yeah. Uh, but apart from that, those are the ones I know, but there's always new things coming up with people, coming up with new things. I've seen people who just have, send me $20 on PayPal. Oh, I forgot the obvious one. I am a patron. Patron is a big thing. A lot of people distribute entirely by patron. That's a slightly different model. You are obviously paying per month and getting bonuses. Usually you get bonuses for that depending on if they are monthly or per creation. Every creator's patron is different. Patron's discoverability is somewhere between non-existent and terrible, depending on the day of the week. (laughs) And I kind of love to recommend patron at the moment because I know there are some issues with how it handles certain content. Its policies are very ill-defined, and I know some people have hit walls with that. So if someone has a patron, totally support them on it, but I'm not sure if in... A couple of weeks, we'll still be seeing people using Patreon as a base, or if we'll see people moving off it. And obviously, all of these sites have the same problem: is no one has defined policies, and there will always come a time where they'll have to decide: here's a product, do we carry this? And where they fall can go in all sorts of ways. And especially as we see, one thing about all indie communities is we're really good at making homes which people don't expect. <laughs> uh, I. 
I'll always remember the fact that the recent conversation, I'm not sure if you saw it, of the creator of the site OnlyFans, yeah. who is now learning that that site has a community he did not expect. <laughs> and now they're having to deal with, do we encourage this community or do we want to try and go to a different community? And in the same way, Itch is inherently that. It was a video game site that a few designers were like, this is really good for distributing PDFs. We're going to make a home here. And I think we're really lucky. And again, the Itch guys are great for just being very accepting of us, despite the fact we're really not who they were intending to be using their site. <laughs> like, sorry, that lyric game people have come filling you with PDFs about sticks. We're sorry. <laughs> but no, I don't know any others. But uh, I'm sure as time goes on, more sites will develop and more alternatives will come up. I know with the recent drive-through controversies, there are people who are discussing setting up alternatives, but obviously web commerce is web commerce, and <laughs> there's a lot of overheads and a lot of behind-the-scenes factors that may cause us to crash and burn or succeed. We don't know. Yeah, and unfortunately, um, any system like that still has to exist under capitalism, which can be a problem. <laughs> that's that's the blunt thing I try to avoid saying. <laughs> <laughs> no, you can say it here. It's fine. <laughs> but yeah, obviously, again, this is why I would always say, even if you're using these storefronts, following creators on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, if they use it. Some people still use Facebook, apparently. I didn't know. <laughs> How quaint. Uh <laughs> Is great because obviously a lot of us are having to move between places which will allow us to do certain things. And a lot of the cases, it's making a product and saying, which storefront let me host this? So being following us on social media is a great way to find out. Um, this is why a lot of people have gone to some, if you're familiar with Card, it's like a quick yeah. homepage maker. And some people are using that for a good reason is because we have to split ourselves between eight storefronts. And you know, I have three at the moment, maybe four. <laughs> so it's like, some things will be on one place, some things will be on another place. It's dependent on all sorts of content rules and the shape, the form, and what I want to do with something. So I can't guarantee all my products will be an X. Sorry. <laughs> well, and I guess uh, related to that point, if you are following creators who post their games, and you know, maybe if you're even if you're not going to be able to buy it, give it a retweet. Maybe one of your friends who's not following them or who missed their post will see a game that they want to try out. Oh yeah, feed the feed the algorithm. The <laughs> algorithm is a hungry beast, and it requires feeding. It just the amount of times, uh, like small virtual support, can be really, really helpful. Uh, I I can point to that actually. Even uh, this morning, uh, Persona Drive when it came out, it got to it got a bit of people sort of in my circle. But then someone from outside my circle retweeted, and suddenly I woke up to like so many different people using it and talking about it because like that person had a circle that didn't intersect with mine. And this is like a whole new people who wouldn't have seen this thing if this person hadn't done that. Also, comments and just general niceties are always appreciated. I think uh, that's been the lovely thing, actually. Uh, this is so sappy of me. <laughs> of the bundles, I've received so many really sweet comments about the two games I had in there. Yeah, and it's really surprising to open my email and not just get PayPal telling me to update my tax information. Like, hey, I played this and I really enjoyed it. It's like, Awesome. That's like amazing. Like you will never understand how much that keeps a creator going. It's like someone has seen this and someone has enjoyed it. It feels so good to know that. And mm. so rarely do people do that. So we've talked a bunch about finding these games, figuring out which one you want to play. Once somebody has uh, found and bought and or tipped the creator and they've got the PDF on their computer or they've printed out, they've got in their hands, how should somebody approach playing an indie game that might be wildly different from what they think an, a tabletop RPG is or how it should work? I think the thing you need to keep in mind is all those skills you've generated GM, GMing for other games or running other games is transferable. You know, very rarely is a game going to ask you to, you know, start tightrope walking. These are all these are all built on effectively a similar concept, and you would approach running these games in the same way you'd approach running anything else. You may have to learn a new sort of some new quirks and some new systems. Like the biggest one you're probably going to deal with when you're moving over is a lot of these indie games are much more collaborative. So the sort of the traditional wall between the GM and the players is a lot less. So players have more influence on the control narrative. So that's probably the big thing you're going to 
first sort of hit. That's going to be the first thing you see. But all those skills are still there. Planning things out, talking with players, communicating, you know, sort of being able to think on your feet are all still key to these games. They all come from this central tenant of playing pretend, you know, of improvisation. They all use this same skill set. They're not that intimidating. I know it looks like it at times because it's a whole new system. And especially if you're coming from a world of very big games, you know, where there are 500 pages, there is still that kind of common thread, that common idea. Obviously, the same thing I would approach. When you, I would say when you're approaching one of the big games is take things slow as you need. There is no rush. If you have a session which doesn't get very far because you had to read the rules a couple of times, it's fine. It happens. We've all been there. Sometimes you have to go back and consult rules again. Sometimes you'll have to tell players, I have no idea what I'm doing here. Let me check or let's all check this and see what comes of it. You know, all of your skills are transferable. And as long as you're sort of communicating with your group as you would when you're a new DM of, hey, I'm very new to this and I'm trying this out and I'm experimenting, we'll accept that. Sometimes you've got to barge into new things and give them a go and see what happens. It might not be perfect, but perfect takes time. And something that I've found, like I've tried out some new games and I've played like Fate, uh, the Atomic Robo version, which was fantastic, but players tend to be pretty forgiving as long as everybody is having a good time. Like if you have to tell them like, hold on, wait, I've got to look up a rule or asking somebody to look up a rule for you. Like as long as everybody is having fun, they're okay with it. So as as someone with an absolutely terrible memory, uh, (laughs) I can tell you the most tables don't care if you can't remember stuff or have to check stuff because I have to do it anyway. I, I have to do it on my own games half the time. (laughs) I, I just forget things or I've got my head in eight places. And so I've actually run versions things I've written and had to go like, wait, what, what, what's this again? <laughs> like the past is a foreign country. I don't know the person who wrote this. <laughs> Something that I'm curious about, because when I, when I ran fate for the first time, something that helped me get prepared was watching uh, some videos on YouTube of people going through the setup and playing a, uh, like it was two videos, like half hour setup, half hour playing, and then another hour of playing in the second video. Um, Are there, because like the thing with some indie games is that unless you find somebody whose entire YouTube thing is playing and reviewing and showing these like one video let's plays, are there many resources out there for uh, folks who might want a little bit of help learning these games or is it kind of just you've got to dive in and make the best of it it depends on the game obviously the bigger names fate has a lot of resources there's you know fate troika has a lot now so obviously smaller games you are gonna have to sort of make do unfortunately because those resources and getting that attention to get those videos made is often costly and out of the reach of a lot of uh a lot of designers you just finding people to do those videos and sort of encouraging them to get them done isn't something you can really do easily unless you already have a big following. But I would say a lot of times, especially with smaller games where those rules aren't available, a lot of the developers are very public and very open. I have had people tweet me asking for rule clarifications on stuff I've written. And yeah, most most of designers, if you're like, hey, how does this work? They'll probably just tweet you and say, yeah, no, this is what I, this is what it is. Or in the case of the one rule I had, it's like, Oh God, I wrote that terribly. Let me let me do a new version and change that. <laughs> so yeah, sometimes unfortunately you are going to be flying by the seat of your pants, but maybe discovery is a bit of fun. It's amazing what you learn by fucking around. Uh, but yeah. it never hurts to have a Google. Uh, obviously, it's looking at YouTube, looking at uh, certain podcasts that do a lot of indie games. But uh, sometimes it is just a case of seeing what you have available and trying your best. Yeah. And a lot of times, your best guess on whatever the rules mean, if they are unclear to you, works. Yeah. As long as things keep rolling, the rules are merely a formality. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's there to have fun and not to rigidly adhere to the set of rules that are in this PDF. Yeah, it's a, it's a tabletop game. It's not like an Edwardian ball. No one is going <laughs> to slap you if you put your foot to the left, not the right. And especially because a lot of the games are much more, a lot of the indie games are quite open. So yeah, there is room for you to do whatever you 
sort of fill in the gap you want to fill in. That's part of the joy of hacking. That's basically what you're doing when you do this. And you're basically hacking a system, mm-hmm. which let's be honest, we've all been doing it because gee, like, when you look at certain Wizards games, they have rules that I've never used. <laughs> like who in their right mind uses encumbrance? I've never met them, nor do I want to, because I think I think they would scare me. I've met but those I, people. It's not it's not great. It's not fun. <laughs> they they let them out, I see. I it's funny because like my perspective is that for a very specific kind of game, I would want to enforce encumbrance, but that is a like journey across a desert where every pound counts and you have to make sure that you've got enough water to get across this desert. And that's a great example, though, of picking out something you want to simulate and why then picking a system based on that. Because I mean, while the encumbrance rule exists in 5e, it's not really worked in that well. Because it's just there to stop you having 500 swords to throw at whatever thing stands in front of you next week. So you could find a game that is much more designed around managing weight or managing survival resources. And there's a lot of games which are basically a player versus environment as opposed to, here's an encumbrance rule that's kind of tacked on. In the same way in Fallout, encumbrance is only there so the devs have to render as much stuff. (laughs) We can't have you carrying around the whole world because that would break the loading. So here's an arbitrary limit that you can't carry anymore. Does it add to the game? That's up to you. If you enjoy that, maybe you'd enjoy something that has a much tighter focus on that arrangement. For sure. Go nuts, Jesse. It looks like you're... I think... I think with this, we've come kind of to the end of a lot of the the points you wanted to hit on. So i got to ask you the traditional question is if you could go back in time and give yourself some advice before you started, let's say, you know, either running or making indie games, your choice, what's a piece of advice you'd give yourself? Start giving less of a shit sooner. <laughs> I I have had, uh, when I started, I've been making games, God, for years now, but I've only... I never really posted them because I was like, oh, this, is, this doesn't look like this boxed game I brought for $90. Until I got to the point of like, it's not going to. Stop caring. Just people will like it. And I think current me, if I go back to my old self, would be like, you know the game you make that people are really going to like? It's a Three Stooges joke where you wanted to, where you made the game literally to say fuck as many times as you humanly can in one PDF. <laughs> also, people like the game you made which is literally because you thought coconuts look like dice. Congratulations! Don't care. (laughs) If you want to be good in the future, start being shit now. (laughs) Yep, that's kind of how it works trying to get good at anything, is you got to start and you're going to suck, but start now and then you'll be less shit sooner. Yeah, and I think the thing with the indie scene we're building up to is that don't you can make a game about literally anything. I don't feel constrained by these very basic models that you may have seen, especially I grew up in a small town. My first experience with D&D was buying a, it was on Twitter ages ago actually, of buying I think th- uh, third edition from a charity shop and not understanding it. Because I didn't realize until later, half the pages were missing. <laughs> <laughs> That's that why it cost a pound. <laughs> That would make it harder to understand. But it wasn't like the back half of the book was missing. It was like every third page was... <laughs> oh, I no. I want to know, because they weren't ripped, so I want to know how this came about. Like, that book has a story, and I'm not sure if I'm ready to hear it. <laughs> not without washing my hands thoroughly. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, obviously, you know, there are these big games, but do whatever and we're seeing this with all sorts of weird weird and wonderful games you can do pretty much anything if there's something you want to simulate or recreate go for it yeah it's it's great advice um for sure. so starshine um are there any i know you've made many many things but is there anything you want to particularly highlight like uh, that you've actually, made recently right now i'd like to promote uh getting the plug in nice and hard uh if you're looking for a hackable system i recently put out persona drive which is a bizarre uh, system I made for a game. It's based on I statements. If you're familiar with your psychology, it's how we talk effectively. You know, I am doing this. So the whole thing is building a character based on making these statements of I am, I can, and I must. And it's uh, free. It's Creative Commons. 
it literally came about because I was trying to make a game based on a Rilakkima, the Sanex bear character whose name is a portmanteau of relax and bear. <laughs> so I just, there's a beautiful show on Netflix about this character and how he lives in a house. It's like, I want to make a game about like living with your animal friends and them helping you through things. And the whole point I had was, how do you define a bear? He's not the strongest. He's not the cleverest. He's not the most active. So like on a D&D character sheet, it could be all fours. <laughs> so I was like, how do you define this character who isn't abstract the best at anything, but together makes this very uh, useful package who is uh, very much appreciated. The whole point of the arc of the show is how he kind of enriches the lives of those around him. So I had the idea of like, hey, having a character who is designed by what they are and what they can do, as opposed to comparing them to a generic list of skills. And then I realized, hey, this is really good for other things as well. This is really good for any setting because, you know, you don't need someone who's really strong if your game is about, say, running a noodle shop <laughs> or fixing a ski lodge. You need a character who's good with a hammer. But most systems don't let you be just good with a hammer. <laughs> So I sort of had this idea of the system that was based on this. And then as it went on, I was just, how do we sort of talk about characters in games? If someone asked me to talk about one of my characters I play, I would never give them the character sheet because it's useless. It's, just, it's an abstract comparing to a scale you don't know. Like you say, saying, I'm four strengths. What does that mean? Out of how many? What's 10 strengths? Is, is that can bench press a truck? Like, how do you define so... And how I talk about my characters is with these statements. And I saw it as well. I have several puppets which around the house. And, you know, one of the friends will pull them off and we'll start bouncing off each other with them. And how we'd always start is, oh, I'm X, I do Y. And the person would be like, oh, well, I'm X. And I my opinion on Y is. So I basically built a character generation system around this concept. So you can basically have your character told by what they are and what they do. And then in case things they enjoy, each of things they must do. And yeah, I thought this is something that I think people like and people want to build off. So that is uh, called Persona Drive and it's on my Twitter and everything else. And yeah, take it, hack it. Literally, there are only three rules to uh, <laughs> using it. And the basic one that covers all of them is just don't embarrass me. <laughs> like, don't, be a, don't use this to be a douchebag. If so, I'm going to have to. But create, have fun, don't be a twat. Please. Good rules for life. Uh, it is. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. This has been, it's been a blast. A pleasure. Yeah. Um, and I think, is there anything else, Jesse, that we need to ask? Where can folks find you online? That's... Oh, I say I have to check. <laughs> uh, my main place is Twitter, is where you get to see me sometimes talk about games and 98% of the time talk about uh, Japanese children's television shows. I like Sailor Moon. I can't help it. I'm really sorry. <laughs> that is at Starshine Scribs. So Starshine followed by SC. R-I-B, because Scribbles is too long for Twitter. Uh, or if you want links to literally everything I make in one handy-dandy package, that is starshinescribbles.card.co, with card being C-A-R-R-D. Card as said by a pirate or a farmer. Curd. Curd. <laughs> or, or a death metal singer, apparently. <laughs> Alrighty. Thanks again for coming on. This has been great. And thanks everybody for listening. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to DMs of Vancouver. We acknowledge that the land we live, work, and play on is the unceded territory of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. In recognition of that fact, we ask that you please support Raven, a charity that helps support indigenous people throughout Canada. You can find them at raventrust.com. We are a part of the Cave Goblin Network. To check out other shows on the network, please visit cavegoblins.com. You can support the show and the network by becoming a patron at patreon.com cavegoblins. You can also support the show by leaving us a review on iTunes or talking about the show. You can find us on Twitter at DMs of Vancouver, at Jesse Boros, and at Sean P. Hagen. Our art is done by the wonderful Haley Boros. See more of her work at haleyboros.com. Our theme music is Overworld by Kevin McLeod. Find his work at acompatech.com. I was told that once, Frost Cricket was a humble prefect of the Celestial City. But when Wanderlust whispered her name, she left to travel the Earth on foot. Her journeys inspired many stories, and those stories inspired other stories. Some idiot wrote them all down, and ever since, fools have been telling and retelling the tales of Frost Cricket.
Hear them all on the Cave Goblin Network. I'm Piers Ray. Sitting with me is Eric Ivanovich. My name is Eric Ivanovich. We're the hosts of Podcast vs. Podcast right here on the Cave Goblin Network. This is the only podcast pitching show on the internet. Tune in. Find out if we can ever find the perfect podcast. Or, more importantly, can we agree on it? This is a Cave Goblin podcast. For other podcasts like this, visit cavegoblins.com. We hope you have enjoyed this program.